Our purpose statement as a, uh, as a church is helping people journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Helping people journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That sounds like a great sentiment, a great goal, but we actually need to be careful about a purpose statement like this because it just might make people who are actually broken feel like this just might be the church for them to come and to get help from, right? Uh, So it's good for us on a Sunday like today that we call Vision uh, Sunday to take stock and ask ourselves, are, are we really ready to welcome broken people? And do we really think that we can help broken people in their journey to wholeness through Christ? Do we really believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is indeed the power of God into salvation for everyone, regardless of how severe their brokenness may be? And our answer to these questions should be a resounding yes. That's why we exist as a church. In fact, all of us are broken, and we're finding here the help that we need through the gospel of Christ. For your encouragement this morning, I want to uh, start the uh, sermon uh, this morning by asking Kristen Riley if she would come up. Um, We have asked her this morning to uh, share Uh, with you her testimony of faith in Christ. Kristen is the daughter of John and Kathy uh, Riley. The Riley family has been attending Cornerstone for about 12 years uh, now, but the Lord graciously saved uh, Kristen about a month and a half ago, and we want you to hear her testimony. So let us welcome her as she comes. raised in a homeschool Christian family, so I, so I was raised knowing who God is. I thought a couple of times that I had accepted Jesus Christ into my heart, but I never really had a personal relationship with him. I was very rebellious when I was younger, conforming on the outside, but rebelling on the inside. I had no problem being bold in my perspective about what is right and wrong to my parents. Starting at the age of 16, there was some traumatic things that had happened in my life. There was molestation and rape, which the devil really used to gain a grip on my mind and my thought process. I felt so consumed with feeling worthless and hopeless inside. I was hurting bad and constantly questioning if I was going to go to heaven because of these things that had happened to me. I began cutting myself just to deal with the pain. I attempted suicide a couple times. I made foolish choices. Excuse me. I attempted suicide a couple times. I had made foolish choices in response to the things that had happened to me. 
I began to be promiscuous, looking for something to fill the void in my heart, chasing around trying to find fulfillment, but nothing ever fulfilled me. At the age of 20, I started experimenting with drugs. I started drinking heavily and partying at every opportunity I had outside of my time at school and work. These things served as doorways for the devil to possess me. At the age of 22, I conceived my firstborn out of wedlock. A couple of months later, I got married to the man whom I thought was the love of my life. A year after I had my second son, I was diagnosed with multiple mental illnesses, PTSD, recurrent depression, severe anxiety, panic disorder, and codependency. Then, after hearing some devastating news in my marriage, I spiraled down even further. My depression was so bad that I, had, I was bedridden for a month. My husband had to go on leave from work in order to take care of me. My condition was so bad that my husband had to spoon feed me and bathe me because I could not do those things for myself anymore. <clears throat> After some research and persuasion from others, I stopped the antidepressants and the sleeping medication and switched over to medicinal cannabis. After that, I heard some more devastating news in my marriage, which led to my divorce. When my husband and I separated, the divorce process, thank you, the divorce pro, uh, when my husband and I separated, the divorce process and custody battle, battles wreaked havoc on me. I willfully disobeyed God during this time, knowing that what I was doing was wrong, committing adultery <clears throat> and fornicating, and nurturing any addiction to pornography. On one occasion, I had an unexpected exorcism performed on me. I had gone to an exorcism in support of a family member, and the exorcism ended up being done on me. Unfortunately, after that exorcism, I did not receive Christ into my heart. I did not repent of my sins. So a couple of weeks after the exorcism, I just went back to living my lifestyle of sin. On December 5th, 2018, I was extremely sick. I was at work and was suffering from severe migraines, which had started two weeks prior. I just wanted to see my mom. It was raining and pouring that day. But I got in my car and drove to my parents' house. There had been an incident that had happened the prior weekend where I felt this overwhelming spiritual heaviness come upon me, and this heavy heaviness was now overwhelming me. My mom offered to pray for me, but I rebuked that and quickly left the house. At this point, the demons were manifesting themselves in me very badly. I was so fearful because the demons seemed to be channeling in and out, and I didn't feel that I had control over my body, my thoughts, or the things I was saying. I called my sister Hannah, and I said to her, I'm afraid to say it, but I'm afraid the demons are back. 
I was driving on the freeway at that point with no particular destina destination in mind. My sister stayed on the phone with me, and I told her, Hannah, I don't know what is going to happen, but whatever happens, please take me to the church. <clears throat> Hannah was able to leave work. She stayed on the phone with me until she met with me at a particular destination. At that point, Hannah and my sister Heather, who was FaceTiming me, were at that time, um, were doing their best to comfort me. We got to my parents' house, and by this point, the demons were manifesting and, taken over, and had taken over my body. I largely blacked out, but remember experiencing almost five hours of torment, physically fighting and my body bending in weird positions. Witnesses said I was spitting and my pupils were dilated. My mom and my sister and my dad took me to the church. They practically had to carry me into the church conference room because I was unable to walk on my own. Alvin Davis, Pastor Milton, Pastor Carlos, and Pastor Mike were in the room with me, together with my parents and sister. The pastors almost immediately started praying in Jesus' name while my body was convulsing and withering in torment. As the pastors prayed, the demons in me would protest at almost every mention of the name of Jesus and his blood that was shed for me on the cross. My parents and sister did their best to hold me still while the pastors prayed. After a lot of Bible reading and praying for my, from, by the pastors, I, rem, I remember something telling me just to shout out and ask Jesus to help me. So I cried. Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. After a lot of Bible reading and praying by the pastors, I remember, oh, sorry. From what I have been told, after that, my body collapsed, and I was unconscious for about 15 seconds. When I woke up, I had no idea where I was or what had just happened. I looked around the room and saw expressions of utter shock on every face in the room. Pastor Milton sat me down and said, do you know why you are here and what just happened? I said no. So they explained to me what had happened. <clears throat> As they talked to me over the next few minutes, for the first time in my life, I felt convicted over my sin because I knew all along what, that what I had been doing is what got me to the place I was in. I felt so bad for, for my sins, for dishonoring my husband, dishonoring God. I decided then and there that enough was enough. No more fornicating, no more pornography, no more being a drunkard. I gave my life to the Lord and asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. When I left the church that day, I felt an overwhelming joy and relief that had taken over me. To this day, I am still amazed at how God of the universe met me in that place of absolute hopelessness and saved me. The moment I cried out, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus delivered me. He gave me the grace to decide that enough was enough to repent of my sin 
and I became committed to following him and raising my children to know who he is. I praise God for saving me, and I pray every day now that my children will one day accept Jesus into their heart and follow him too. Thank you for listening to my testimony. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Kristen, for sharing your testimony of deliverance and faith in Christ with all of us. Uh, God is good. Amen. He is good to save. And we're happy to announce in connection with what Kristen just shared uh, that a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago yesterday, that Kristen was baptized during a gathering of the Gill care group that Kristen's family is a part of. And we so appreciate God's work in her life. And we celebrate her willingness to publicly identify herself with Christ through the waters of baptism. And just on the road ahead, let's try to take every opportunity that we can to encourage her in her walk with the Lord and just bless her in any way that we can as she seeks to to follow Christ. And let's give God all of the glory for the amazing work that he has done. And if you're here today and you are broken, you are in good company. If you are broken and oppressed, you can cry out, to this same Jesus as Kristen did. And he will come swiftly to your rescue just as he did for her. It's this Savior that we'll be talking about uh, this morning as we look at the text of, of Scripture. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. You know, the words that um, that we've already heard. Jesus help me figure prominently in Kristen's moving testimony. And these words are also the title of the message today as we look at Mark 9, because we actually hear a very similar cry in Mark chapter 9 in the passage I want us to look at today. Our purpose statement as a church, as I've already mentioned, uh, actually begins with the words helping people. The first four letters of that statement are the word help, a word that is familiar to all of us. There's, there's actually something primal about the word help. If a person finds themselves in uh, dire straits or is drowning, for example, they will instinctively cry out and say, help. Help as a word is only one syllable, so it's quick and easy to say. A drowning person does not say, I need assistance. Or I find myself lacking buoyancy. Could someone come and rescue me from drowning No, they just say, 
help. And all a person needs to do is hear that cry and look at the person's plight, and they know exactly the kind of help that is needed. And if our purpose as a church is helping people journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel, then that actually means that every member of Cornerstone ought to be very good at doing three things. Number one, crying help to God and to others when they need it. Number two, receiving and welcoming that help from God and from others. And number three, bringing help to others, right? And if we wish to be good at doing these three things, then we should have a basic theology of help, the help we need and the help that we are called to deliver to others. So I I want us to spend this Sunday and the next two Sundays, Lord willing, on this theme of help. And to get us started this morning, I want to read to you from Mark chapter 9, where we see a man uttering two cries for help. Jesus, as some of you already know, is returning from the mountain where he revealed his glory to Peter and James and, and John. And when they return from the mountain to the other nine disciples, there's a large crowd that is, is gathered. And there's some arguing that's going on. And Jesus asks, you know, what, what, what are you guys talking about? What are you arguing about? And as soon as he does so, a man in the crowd speaks up. And I'll begin reading the text in verse 17. The text says, and one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he, Jesus, answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he, Jesus, asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said 
he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you uh, so much for our sister's testimony this morning, for your work, your sweet work of deliverance and grace in her life. Even your grace in her life and giving her the courage to stand before this audience and testify of Jesus and give glory to him. Prosper her, Lord, and her walk with you in the days ahead. We pray, Lord, for all of us gathered in this room that you would do a good work in each of us. Save those who need to be saved. Deliver those who need to be delivered. Encourage those who need to be encouraged and bring conviction to all of us where conviction of sin is needed. And do your full good pleasure in each of us, Lord during our time together this morning. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. What I want to do with the time that we have is I I just want to look at three truths. We're not going to break this passage down in its entirety. We're just going to look at three truths that we can draw from this passage that we should remember if we want as a church to help people in their journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first truth that I think we can learn from this incident in Mark 9 is that we should ask Jesus to help us experience the deliverances we need. We should come to Jesus. We should ask him to help us experience the deliverances we need. And the story in Mark 9, a desperate father brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus And says in verse 22, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Notice that this father is asking Jesus to help us, not just to help his son, but to help us. The dad is included in this. His son was not the only one in the family who was struggling with demon possession the the demon possession of his son was as much of a burden to this father as it was to the son. And this dad knew that he was helpless in curing his son of the oppression that he was under. So this dad points to the gruesome plight that he and his son were in and literally says to Jesus, be moved with compassion and help us. I think those of us who are parents can only begin to imagine the heartache that this father lived with every day. Imagine being this dad with your child in this condition. How does the father of a son in this condition ever get any sleep? What sense of perpetual evil must this father have felt at all times in his home 
day after day after day? What kind of nightmares does a dad like this have when he sleeps at night when this is his reality during the day? Clearly, his son's demon possession makes the father's plight as pitiful as the son's plight, which is why this father says to Jesus, take pity on us and help us. And I think it's clear to all of us the extent of the help this man is needing and is asking for. Sometimes we ask someone for help when we could almost do something ourselves, but it's kind of nice to have someone lend a helping hand to help us to get it done more quickly. Then there are times when we are actually completely helpless and we ask for help. And that's what's happening here. This man and his son are completely helpless to remedy their situation. So the help that this dad is asking for from Jesus is total 100% help. In fact, speaking of helplessness, this man's son is so helpless that he is not even in a place where he can speak and ask Jesus for help because he's unable to speak. He needs his father to speak for him and to be his advocate and to ask Jesus for him. This son may not realize it in this moment, but he's blessed to have a father who is essentially pleading in prayer for his son in this way. The way John and Kathy Riley prayed for their daughter, Kristen, and pray for their other children. May your own children be blessed to have such an advocate before the throne of God as what we see this dad being for his son. There's a lot to love about what this father is doing here. He's coming to the right person who is Jesus. He's recognizing his and his son's pitiful condition and their need. And he's asking Jesus for help. But as good as what this dad is doing, there is a flaw in his request. Notice how he begins his request. He says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you ever want to get under Jesus' skin, preface your prayer request by saying, Jesus, if you have the power to do this, could you do such and such? Those words are like fingernails on a chalkboard to Jesus. And if any of you young people want to know what a chalkboard is, come talk to me afterwards. <laughs> I'm sure on some level we can appreciate why this father's faith was so weak. He lived with this nightmare for years. And on this very day, nine of Jesus' disciples were unable. They tried and they were unable to cast the demon out of this man's son. And their failure surely only served to confirm this father's worst fears that his son's case was truly exceptional and beyond hope. And I think all of us can certainly understand that. But what this man doesn't realize is that the flaw that is in his request for help actually reveals a part of the problem in this situation. This man thinks his biggest problem is that his son is demon-possessed when in fact...
there is a problem in this father's heart. And that problem is the problem of unbelief. So he asks Jesus for help in one area. And Jesus is going to reply by first helping him with his heart. This matter of the unbelief that is in his heart. And this leads us to the second truth that we should know if we wish to be a church that truly helps people in their journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, we should ask Jesus to help us with our unbelief problem. And all of us have an unbelief problem. If I asked how many of you believe the truth of the gospel all day, every day, perfectly, 24-7, I suspect no hands would go up. Observe how Jesus responds to this father. The father says, if you can take pity on us and help us. And look at verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. The first words out of Jesus' mouth are a challenge. If you can, Jesus is saying, seriously? That's how you're going to preface your request to me? Your question reveals that you're not so sure that I am capable of bringing deliverance to your son. And therein lies a part of the problem here. The truth is that all things are possible to him who believes. And he's putting on this dad a responsibility to believe. Jesus question, along with his positive statement that all things are possible to him who believes are designed to awaken faith in this man. If he would only believe. As a pastor, I I have to say that a statement like this from Jesus makes me suspect that God can do more in our midst if we simply had a greater faith in his power to do so. Are there deliverances needed among us that God is actually quite capable of doing and willing to do, yet our faith is lacking? Even when we pray to God and ask God to do some good work in us or in others, is there unbelief in our hearts that serves as a hindrance to the work that God wants to do? Fortunately, God does not always allow himself to be limited by our faith, but sometimes he does. And we see that at times, even in the New Testament. For example, we learn in Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, that Jesus could do no, or basically do only a few miracles in Nazareth, his hometown, marveling at the unbelief that he found in that city. God often ties his work on earth to faith in the hearts of people, meaning that there are times when God is perfectly willing and capable of doing some good thing in us or through us, but he refrains from doing so because of unbelief in our hearts. So what does God do? Well, when he wants to do a great work, his first task is to challenge our unbelief and awaken a larger and more vibrant faith within us, a faith that is more befitting to his greatness and the greatness of what he's wanting to do. 
And that's what Jesus is doing here with this father and his challenge and his promise that he speaks to this father seem to have their intended effect on his heart. Look at verse 24. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Notice how this man is recognizing his deficiency. He's recognizing his own need. He realizes that he needs help as much as his son needs help. He confesses his faith, but he also confesses that he needs help with his unbelief. This is actually the nature of true saving faith. True faith recognizes where it falls short. And we see that in this man when he says, I do believe, help my unbelief. True faith confesses itself and also acknowledges where it falls short. This man is saying to Jesus, help my unbelief to become belief. If the fate of my son is dependent in any way on my faith or lack thereof, then help my unbelief so that I believe as I should so that the impossible becomes possible and deliverance can come to my home. That's the miracle that this dad is now asking for. And it's the first miracle that God wants to do in the heart of this dad. And I have no doubt that Jesus was as quick to answer this man's prayer regarding his unbelief as he was to answer the man's prayer that he prayed on behalf of his son. A passage like this teaches us that God is honored when we come to him with faith in our hearts and say, I believe he's honored by that. But this passage also teaches us that we honor God when we actually come to him with our unbelief and ask him to help us with our unbelief. You know why? Because it actually takes faith to ask Jesus to help you with your lack of faith. If you have doubts, don't make those doubts keep you from coming to Jesus. Bring your doubts to him and ask him to help you with your unbelief. We're not told this, but it's clear that Jesus does a miracle in this father's heart in helping him to experience deliverance from his unbelief. Jesus then turns to the son and he casts the demon out of his son. Beginning in verse 25, look at what we're told. He, Jesus, rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it, the spirit, came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. To those observing the scene at this point, it seems like Jesus' intervention has made things worse. They're thinking, now he's dead. But Jesus is not finished. Observe what he does in verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him. And he got up. I'm sure this father was never more happy in his life and his gratitude to Jesus had to have been unspeakable. But now the disciples are scratching their heads. 
they try to cast the demon out of this boy and they failed, but Jesus seemed to do it with no problem. Jesus had actually commissioned these disciples to cast out demons, yet they failed to do this thing that he had earlier commissioned them to do. How could this be? And this brings us to the third truth that we should be mindful of if we want to be a church that helps people in their journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number three, our efforts to help others should be marked by prayer. Our efforts to help others should be marked by prayer. Observe what happens in verse 28. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately And here's their question. Why could we not drive it out? In effect, they're saying we saw that you were able to help this boy experience deliverance from the demon. Why were we not able to help him? I totally respect the disciples' willingness to ask this question of Jesus knowing that they're probably going to hear an answer that exposes some kind of fault with them. They failed in ministry royally in front of each other and in front of a large group of people. And they saw and heard Jesus' frustration at them when he heard the news that they were unable to cast the demon out of the boy. Yet rather than just kind of quietly move on and sweep their failure under the rug, they put it out there on the table and they asked Jesus the question, why could we not drive it out? They're asking the right question and they are asking it of the right person whom they have come to know is the one who's full of grace and truth, the one who will always speak the truth to them and he will always do so in love. He's the one you can come to with questions like this. And observe Jesus' answer in Mark chapter 9, verse 29. And he said to them, this kind, in other words, this kind of demon, this kind of spirit cannot come out by anything but prayer. What he's saying is you guys didn't pray and you did not seek God's help in your efforts to bring help to this boy. Evidently, what the disciples should have done was pray to God when this situation was brought to them and ask God to deliver the boy from the demon. And when the demon may have proved resistant to their initial efforts, as one commentator says, their their faith should have risen up in its might and appealed to Jesus in a fervent prayer that he make good his promise to them to expel demons. Had they done this, they would have prevailed over the demon had they prayed. But unfortunately, the disciples did not think of prayer in this instance. They let their faith droop at once and thus failed in their effort to cast the demon out of the boy. And what Jesus is essentially telling his disciples is that this particular kind of spirit 
will only come out of a person when the disciples are appealing to God to bring about the deliverance. Had the disciples prayed and had they called upon God to deliver the boy from this demon, this demon would have come out. We know from earlier in Mark's gospel that Jesus had already commissioned the disciples and given them authority to cast demons out of people in Jesus' name. We see that in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And as a result, we, we see in Mark's gospel, they've already cast many demons out of people on prior occasions. Yet here in this instance, they could not do something that Jesus clearly had commissioned them to do, which teaches us a profound lesson. And the lesson is this, just because Jesus has commissioned you to do something does not mean that you will ever be able to succeed in doing that thing apart from prayer. Let me say that again. Just because Jesus has commissioned you to do something does not mean that you are able to succeed in doing that thing without prayer. It also means this, just because you may have done something in Jesus' name before successfully doesn't mean that you will succeed in the future if you try to do that same thing without prayer. All Jesus' commission to us means is that we are now authorized to do whatever he's commissioned us to do so long as we do that in prayerful reliance upon him. At every turn. And he's saying, you guys, you didn't pray. You didn't pray. Don't ask me to explain what Jesus means about this kind comes out only by prayer. Does that imply that others can come out without prayer? So I guess maybe this is a demon. We don't have to pray. So let's try. And if it doesn't work, then we'll pray. The safest way to take what Jesus says here is. There are some that only come out by prayer. So here's our strategy. We will just always pray and we're covered. Is that safe? By the way, some later manuscripts have Jesus saying in verse 29, uh, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And then the words and fasting are added. And there are a number of Greek manuscripts that have those additional words and fasting, but the oldest and the best manuscripts just stop at the word prayer, which actually makes more sense anyway. The disciples could not have fasted once the boy was brought to them, nor could they or should they have said, hey, let us fast for three days and then bring your son back to us. In fact, you can write down the reference Mark 2 that you see on the screen behind me in verses 18 and 19. Jesus actually defended his disciples for the fact that they did not fast while they were with him. So it would be odd for Jesus to defend them for not fasting in Mark 2 and then to tell them that their lack of fasting is the reason why they could not cast the demon out of this boy. So it's for good reason that most interpreters look at the manuscript evidence and, and other evidence and agree that Jesus is simply saying here, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. 
But even this by itself leaves us with something to ponder. Why did the disciples not pray in this situation like they should have? Was it because they were pridefully independent? Was it because they were pridefully dependent on their own strength and thought, hey, we've done this before, we can handle this? Perhaps. They had done this many times before and maybe they thought we can handle this and it's not a problem. We'll just deliver the command and success will result. That's probably a part of the reason, but another likely reason that they didn't pray was because they themselves had come to think that even God could not deliver this boy. Which is why Jesus says in verse 19, when he hears the news of their failure, his first words are, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? And that complaint was directed primarily at the disciples and a little bit at this boy's dad. We get a stronger indication of this in Matthew's account of this incident. In Matthew 17, Uh, the story of this same incident, the disciples asked Jesus why they could not cast the demon out of the boy. And Jesus answers them in Matthew 17, 20. And listen to his answer. He says, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So when you put the pieces together, you realize that part of the reason the disciples did not pray in this situation is because they didn't think their prayers would do any good. Have you ever been there? Evidently, they allowed their faith in God in this situation to become smaller than the size of of a mustard seed, which is among the smallest of all seeds. Something about this boy's particular case seemed so freakishly awful that the disciples wavered in their faith and they doubted God's ability to deliver the boy from this evil spirit. And sadly, their lack of faith in God hindered their ability to be agents through whom God could bring deliverance to this boy. This fact should sober us beyond words. Think about it, guys. The disciples' lack of faith in God hindered their ability to bring real help to this boy. The disciples' lack of faith in God hindered their ability to bring help to this boy. Had they believed And had they prayed, they could have helped the boy, but their prayerlessness and their faithlessness made them unhelpful in a situation in which they were called to be helpful. And I have no doubt that the disciples will learn a powerful lesson from this incident. If they're truly going to bring help to the oppressed in the days to come, They themselves need to pray and seek God's help for themselves as they do so. 
and they need to believe that God has the power to deliver on his promise. And the same lesson applies to us as well as a church. We want to help people in their journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in order to truly be helpers to others, we must have faith that God has the power to bring deliverance and salvation to sinners, to the lost, and to his own people. And we must cry out to him in prayer to accomplish that deliverance. And if we're not going to believe like this, and if we're not going to pray like this, then actually we're just getting in the way and we're a part of the problem. And I don't think any of us wants that. So I remind you all this morning, something many of you already know is true. We got the best savior who is mighty to save. We got the best gospel, a true story of a savior who became man and lived among us, who died on the cross in order to bring blood atonement for our sins. He was raised from the dead and ascended to God's right hand where he now has full authority and power and can do whatever he pleases. And from that position of absolute power and lordship, Jesus is in the business of delivering broken people like us from our sins. And this Jesus says to us, all things are possible for those who believe. When Kristen a month and a half ago, first entered the conference room where four of us elders were gathered and waiting. The demon that was in her spoke and leveled an accusation at the four of us elders. The demon dismissively waved us off and said to Kristen, they don't believe. I told you they don't believe. He clearly didn't think there was enough faith in the room to give God a chance to work. And maybe that accusation was partly right. Maybe our faith wasn't all that great at the outset, but you know what? We just started praying and reading scripture and praying and reading scripture. And the more we prayed and the more we read scripture, the more God was growing our faith. And when Kristen cried out and said, Jesus, help me, you could feel the explosion of faith in the room. And we all knew it was over at that point. There was no way Jesus would fail to hear her cry. And for the record, none of us elders in the room with Kristen cared to know the demon's name or engage in conversation with the demon. We already knew the only name that mattered, Jesus. And he was the only one that we wanted to engage with in prayer. We asked God in prayer to help Kristen to call upon the name of Jesus. And the moment she called upon his name, it was over. And she was free. And to this day, those of us who were in the room are still blown away by how swift Jesus was to come to Kristen's rescue after years of struggling under oppression 
And after hours of her struggling throughout that day, and after about 40 minutes of her struggling and being tormented here in the church conference room, she simply said, Jesus, help me. And Jesus delivered her instantly. It was as if Jesus was just waiting in the wings. It's as if he was saying to Kristen, just just say the word help and say my name. Put those two words together and I'm there. And as soon as she uttered her cry, he was there to rescue her with a rescue that was breathtaking in its swiftness. That's how eager of a savior Jesus is. He's a zealous eager savior. When we call upon him, he doesn't look at his watch and say, yeah, you know what? I, I got a lot going on. Ask around. And if no one else can help you, come back to me. No, just say the word help and say my name and I'm there. And I was left asking myself, why don't I say help me Jesus more often? from day to day. When was the last time you cried out, help me, Jesus. Help me understand. Help me have victory. Help me experience rescue. When was the last time you cried out, help me, Jesus, for yourself or even for someone that you're trying to help? If you're here today and you have never looked to Jesus, For salvation, today is the day to come to him and say, Jesus, help me. We're told in the Bible in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, that while we were still, what? Helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Admit your helplessness to save yourself and then look to Jesus as your ultimate helper And if you do that, you will find him just as eager to rescue you as he was to rescue Kristen. You will find him swift and you will find him mighty to save. For those of you who are Christians, I I ask you this morning, what are those situations that you have found yourself losing hope over? Who did you once pray for, but you have stopped praying for them Because you've lost hope. Who did you once help, but you stopped helping because you lost hope for that situation? Though you say that you believe in the power of the gospel to change anyone, are there some situations and some needs that in reality you kind of think this is a little too extreme for Christ to truly change? Be honest. Are there deliverances in your own life that you really need? But you don't really believe that Christ can deliver you. All of us in this room are at various places in the journey from brokenness to wholeness. Wherever we are at. Let's be crying out to God daily for his help. Let's spend more time in his word. 
Let's spend more time in prayer beholding a big God who can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Let's cry out to him to help us with our unbelief and to help us to bring help to others. Let's ask him to enlarge our faith and make it bigger than what it is now so that he might do more in us and among us and through us and confident in the strength that he provides. Let's, let's receive and welcome the help that he offers and let's embrace our calling to bring that help to others so that we can be a helper to them in their journey from brokenness to wholeness. And let's be excited about what God is actually capable of doing in us and through us as we seek to help people in that journey in the months ahead. Will you do that? Let's go to God and pray and just ask him to help us to heed this call. Lord, you've done uh, amazing things through the the life and the ministry of this church. So many people, Lord, just even who are here today, there's just miracles that you have done in, in, in lives, miracles of transformation. All of us are, are living, breathing miracles of, of grace, those of us who know you. And, uh, and yet... The sense we have studying a passage like this, Lord, is that you want to do more. You are able and you are willing. You are eager and ready to do more. And to prepare for that, you want to do a work in our hearts to enlarge our faith. To help us with our unbelief and to grow our faith into something that's more befitting to your greatness, to your power and to your eagerness to deliver and to save and to transform. So we confess, Lord, as this father did just on this vision Sunday, Lord, we, we say to you, we do believe, but help our unbelief. Because our unbelief that is in our hearts is very likely hindering us from being more useful to you. We would ask for many miracles, but Lord, if you just did this miracle, there's a lot of good that flows downstream of this miracle. So we just put our hearts before you and say, do a miracle of faith in our hearts. May this be a year, 2019, where it's palpable, it's, it's observable that the faith in the hearts of the people of this church is growing exponentially. 
that there's a revival of faith where we're believing things are possible with God that maybe before we didn't quite believe so passionately or may have even doubted, believing that for ourselves and for others. So let the miracle, Lord, start in our hearts. Let it start in my heart. I need this in my own heart. I believe, Lord. I believe in you. Help my unbelief. We, we believe in you and trust you and have faith to believe that you can help us with our unbelief. And so we come to you asking this this morning. And Lord, if there is anyone here today who's broken, who's oppressed, who's lost in their sins, trapped in the guilt of their sins, I pray that through the testimony they've heard this morning and through your word as it's been presented this morning that your spirit would just reach out and touch their heart and bring life to them and enable them by your grace to repent of their sin and to cry out and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus that they might experience even in this moment where they're seated, you being a swift and eager Savior who is so quick to save. Save people in this room even now, Lord. And may those you save be willing to go public with their faith in you and, and want to be baptized and proclaim the testimony of the work of salvation that you have done in them. We thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to give of our offerings to you, receive what we give in this offering, and use all that is given for the glory of this mighty Savior who is mighty to save and at the same time, we surrender our hearts and our whole selves to you. And we give ourselves in this offering. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said.